Good morning. I don't know if the fan is really loud or if I couldn't hear you. Good morning. morning. All right, that sounds a little better. Um, It's great to be here. We have a fan for you this week. I hope you appreciate that. And a huge answer to prayer. It's about 30 degrees cooler this week than it was last week, so that's a big answer to prayer. We're glad you're here with us this morning. We are finishing this morning our series in... Um, the vision of Redemption Hill Church. Last, these three weeks have been kind of casting a vision for what Redemption Hill Church is about, what we want to be as the people of God. And so we're going to finish that this morning. And I want to start this morning with a story. Um, you may have heard of a man named John Kehoe. I doubt you've heard of him unless you live in Wisconsin. Um, he's not a politician, he's not a celebrity. Um, He hasn't really done anything of note. Um, There's really no reason for you to know anything about John Kehoe, except that he lives in Wisconsin. At the time this story takes place, he was 30 years old. He was unemployed. He was unemployed actually for a very long time. In fact, the week before, he had just picked up his very last unemployment check. And he was down to his last few dollars. He had about five or six dollars left from his last unemployment check. He's pretty desperate, not really sure what he's supposed to do. And so what do you do with your last five or six dollars when you have no job and you have no prospects? Um, You do what I think any of us would do. You go to McDonald's and you buy a McRib meal. Um, It's hard. I would think any of us would do that because um, the McRib is only available for a limited time. (laughs) You don't know when you're going to get another McRib, especially with no job prospects on the horizon. Five or six dollars goes a long way at McDonald's. It's sustenance. Certainly he's going to need that to get him through at least the next few days. I mean, it's some measure of sustenance. And it's kind of like buying a lottery ticket because at the time McDonald's was running their uh, Monopoly promotion. And so with his McRib meal, he got two game pieces on his large drink. And one of them was Boardwalk, and the other was Park Place. And for some of you, that's a big deal. Some of you are like, who cares? John Kehoe, with his last few dollars of his last unemployment check, went to McDonald's, bought a McRib meal, and won a million dollars, which is a lot of money. And John Kehoe's problem was solved. He had a million bucks, which is a pretty cool story. My question is, who do you think is the first person that John called? I don't know if he's married. If he's married, he probably calls his wife. If he's not, maybe he calls his parents or a best friend. Somebody is getting that first phone call from John, and John is going to be over the moon excited about his McRib meal, more excited than most. Who's the second person that John calls, do you think? I mean, if it's you, who's the first person you call? Who's the second person you call? Here's the question I'm really driving at this morning. If you're John Kehoe, do you think there's anybody that knows him that does not know this story? Do you think anybody that knows John Kehoe doesn't know he won a million dollars from a McRib meal on his last unemployment check? Everybody knows this story because it's a great story. I doubt there's anyone in his life that doesn't know it. So here's the point. We are... John Kehoe. And the gospel is the spiritual McRib meal. (laughs) I know this is a stretch for some of you. 
We are John Kehoe. We have been given this unbelievable story to tell. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have this incredible story to tell. You were desperate, you were at the end of yourself, and God steps in and does something amazing to save you and loves you in this spectacular way that completely changes everything. Problem solved, God fixed it. And so the question is, when that became a reality for you, who is the first person that you told? Is there anyone in your life that doesn't know that story about you? Because John's McRib meal is cool, but this is unbelievable. And is there anybody in our life who doesn't know this story and why is that? There shouldn't be anybody that we know that doesn't know our story with God. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I would just ask you to listen in because this morning we're going to talk about the mission of God for the church. What is God's mission for us as the church? And the reason I would ask you to listen in is because we're not sharing any secret. There's not like a scheme for how we're going to trick people into believing what we're believing. We're just talking about telling people the unbelievable story of what God has done, how God stepped in and fixed the problem, and then as followers of Jesus, what is our response going to be to that? Would you pray with me this morning before we open God's Word? Father, we just, we pray this morning, we thank you. We thank you for the cooler weather. Lord, we thank you for this place to meet and proclaim you, to worship you together, to hear from your Word. We pray this morning, Lord, that you would inspire us to tell your story, that you would capture us with a vision for your mission for us as your people in your church, and that we would walk out of here with a new understanding of what it looks like to follow you in that mission. We pray these things in your name. Amen. I want to give you some context of where you've been in case you haven't, of where we have been in case you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks. The first week of this vision series, we talked about the gospel. We just talked about the good news of the Bible and what that means for us as individuals, as followers of Christ. And we said that the gospel means that I am accepted and that I am justified. It means that I'm accepted by God as I am, not because of my behavior, but because God loves me. And because of Jesus' work on the cross, I'm justified. I stand before a holy God, blameless, because when he sees me, he sees his son. That's the gospel, and that's the implication of the gospel for a follower of Christ. I'm accepted and loved by God, and I'm justified before him. And then the next week, we talked about what is the implication of the gospel for the family of God, for the church. What does it look like for us to be God's family together? And we said it, we're adopted into God's family, so we are all a part of God's family, and part of following Him means that we belong in that family. And then that we're unified, that we're in this together, that this is something we get to do together. And that means a, a number of things that we looked at. We said it means we accept each other as members of the same family, that we are as accepting, as loving, as forgiving as God with one another. We put up with one another, which implies that it's not easy. We spend time together. We look for opportunities to be together as the family of God. And we meet needs. We meet practical needs for one another as God gives us resource 
we meet needs for each other because that's what a family does. So the gospel has implications for who I am as a follower of Christ. The gospel has implications for who we are as followers of Christ, as the church. And this morning we're going to talk about what is the implication of the gospel for the mission of God. What does the gospel mean for us as followers of Christ to be on mission with Him? And what is the mission that God sends us out on? We're going to look this morning at Matthew 28. So if you have your Bible, if you can turn to Matthew 28. If you don't have a Bible here this morning, we have some that are available for you. They're right here on the end. If you want to raise your hand, someone will pass one down for you. If you'd rather not do that, um, you're welcome to cheat off a neighbor. But if you don't have a copy of God's Word now or later, you're welcome to grab one of these Bibles and take that home with you. That is our gift to you. So we won't stop you from doing that. Matthew 28 is where we're going to spend our time this morning. Some of you already know this passage. This is um, what we're about to see, what we're about to read in Matthew 28 is what our senior pastor, Robert Bishop, would refer to as a leveraged conversation. I don't know if you know what a leveraged conversation is, but here's an example. Have you ever had a conversation on the phone with someone and they said, when you get home, we need to talk? That's a leveraged conversation, okay? Um, what, what are you thinking of when you hear that? You're certainly thinking, um, one, I'm, now I'm thinking about what we're going to talk about when I get home, and maybe you've heard that from a parent or a friend, a roommate, a spouse, but you're thinking, there's something important we need to talk about. That's what I'm inferring from this. We are going to see a leveraged conversation. We're going to look at a group of people who have been following Jesus um, for a long time, they have watched his ministry, they've watched him heal people, they've heard him teach, they've seen what he can do, and then they've seen him killed, and their hopes for what he was meant to be are dashed. This was the Messiah, this was the person that was going to free them, to release them from the Romans, to make them a great kingdom again. That's what they were hoping that Jesus was. Now Jesus did all these great things, said all these great things, led them to believe that that was true about him. They believed that he was the Messiah. They were following him. They were his disciples. And then he's dead. And that's discouraging. And then he comes back to life, which is unexpected. And he says, hey, go to Galilee. And when I see you there, there's something I want to tell you. That's a leveraged conversation. Jesus, the Messiah, killed, comes back to life, and then says, hey, we have something we should talk about. My sense is, I would think, yes, um, something important is going to take place in this conversation. We need to be a part of it. We're going to start just a little bit before that conversation in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 28. <clears throat> We're going to stop a couple times because there are a few things that are worth noting here. In verse 16 of Matthew 28, it says this, now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Jesus has appeared to the disciples already. He's already seen them a couple of times. But there are a group of followers of Jesus in Galilee that are about to meet him for the first time since the resurrection, which is a significant thing. Something strike you as odd about this verse? Let me read it to you again. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. What's wrong with that? Do you hear something wrong? Because I hear something wrong. The 11 disciples. That doesn't sound right. 
We're used to that being the 12 disciples. Biblically, 12 is a more perfect number. They've been 12 the whole time, and now one of them is gone. One of the um, pastors who has had the most influence in my life is Luke Hendricks. He's a pastor at Imago Dei Church, and he says it this way, the church and the men that Jesus is about to build his church on is kind of 11-ish. There's something kind of awkward about 11. It just doesn't feel right. It doesn't sound right. Sounds like something's missing and something is missing. One of the 12, in fact, he's not just not around, he's taken his own life. And the disciples kind of walk into this encounter with Jesus limping. This has been a rough road. Verse 17, it says this, and when they saw him, they worshiped him. I'm going to stop there. There's more to that verse. When they saw him, they worshiped him. We see this only one other time in the gospel account. It's when Jesus walks on water. And when he gets into the boat, it says the disciples worshiped him. This is the other time when the deity of Christ, when the when, when the disciples recognize Christ for who he really is. When Jesus walks on water, they recognize him for who he really is. All of a sudden, they're hearing all, everything that he's been saying in a different way, and they bow down and worship him. Now Jesus has shown power over death. God has raised him from the dead, and when they see him, they worship him. But what's the end of that verse? It says, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. We saw this happen with the disciples as well, when people said that Jesus had come back to life, and Thomas said, until I see it and until I touch him, I'm not going to believe it. And because we know the story of Scripture, we can be kind of hard on Thomas, but the truth is, if somebody told me that one of you came back to life, I would feel very much the same way. Like, you can tell that to me, but until I see it, I won't believe it. And so these followers of Jesus in Galilee feel very much the same way. Some of them bow down and worship him, and some of them come skeptical. And throughout Scripture, we see this tension for followers of Christ between faith and doubt. It's just a part of the walk with God. In fact, that same passage when Jesus walks on water in Matthew 14, we see the same thing. They worship him, but in the same moment, they doubt him. In fact, when Peter says, I want to come out and walk on the water toward you, and Jesus says, yeah, fine, come on out. He's fine when he keeps his eyes fixed on Christ, but as soon as he takes his eyes off of Jesus, he starts to panic and he sinks. It's all about the contrast between faith and doubt. Once again, God plans to use an 11-ish church, kind of an awkward group of people who are caught in this tension between faith and doubt, and imperfect people to do his perfect work. Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is just to preface the statement he's about to make. And he says, hey, all authority has been given to me. I am God. I have power over everything. I'm in charge of everything, everywhere, all the time. So now this conversation is really leveraged, (laughs) heavily leveraged. So what he is about to say comes with authority. He says, I have authority, the same power that raised me from the dead. And then we see in verse 19 is when he's going to give them 
the mission or the commission. This is what's known as the Great Commission. If you've heard it before, most of you have heard it before. And what that means is to, a commission, to commission someone is to send them out on a mission. Hey, that's exactly what we're talking about this morning. To send them out on a mission. He's talking to people who have been following him. So talking to followers of Christ and he's going to tell them, he's going to send them out on a mission. And before he says it, he says, hey, I'm God, all authority rests with me. So listen to what I'm about to say. And he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He says, because of what I just said, because I have all authority and power, then listen to what I'm saying. Go make disciples everywhere. That's the Great Commission. The last couple of weeks, we've talked a lot about the Great Commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And we talked about how our response to the truth of the gospel, our response to the truth of the good news in the Bible is to love God. So that one's pretty easy. When we understand the gospel, how can we not love God? He says, and the second is like it, to love others as yourself. So the gospel compels us to love God. It enables us to love others. That's a great commandment. This morning we're looking at the great commission. What is the mission of God's people? Go and make disciples. Now, when we read this verse, we tend to put the emphasis on go, and we tend to use this as the impetus for overseas missions. And that is, that's not inappropriate that's a perfectly reasonable application of this mission. It's just not the only application of this mission because the emphasis of the passage is on make disciples. Everything in the passage points to that. He says, go what? Go make disciples. He says, baptize them. Baptize who? The disciples that you're making. And then he says, teach them. Who are we to teach? We're to teach the disciples that we're making. We're to teach the disciples that we're baptizing. And this is where we see the cycle of discipleship. We become a disciple. We're introduced to the gospel. We become a follower of Jesus, which would be the simplest way to define a disciple, a follower of Jesus. So we become a follower of Jesus. We're baptized into God's family. So we become a part of his family. Then we're taught to obey him we are discipled, that's the church word for obedience, being taught to obey, we're discipled, and then we disciple others to do the same. That means as a follower of Christ, we're gonna find people who don't know Jesus and we're gonna introduce them to him, and then we're gonna baptize them into his family and we're gonna teach them how to obey. And then we're gonna teach them to do the same thing that we're doing. It's a multiplication ministry, and that's how Jesus intends the church to work. And then he says, verse 20, the end there, he says, I am with you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you see how this conversation is framed in God? <laughs> how this is framed in Jesus? He says, I'm Jesus, back from the dead. In case you were questioning my power, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. So listen, gives them the mission. Then he says, and I'll go with you. It's like sandwiched in God. And where have we heard this before? I will go with you. 
heard this a number of times, but the one that comes to mind to me is Moses in Exodus. When God sends him out on a mission, God commissions him on a rescue mission. Go and rescue my people from Egypt. I've heard the cry of my people. I need someone to go and get them out, and I'm asking you to go. And Moses says, who am I? Please send somebody else. I can't do this. And God says, no, I'll go with you. And that should be the end of the conversation. And it's not the end of the conversation. And Moses says, "Um, what if they don't believe me? And God, as if he needed to display his power anymore, because he's speaking to Moses out of a burning bush that's not being consumed, God says, hey, what's that in your hand? And Moses says, oh, that's my staff. Throw it on the ground. So he does, and it becomes a snake. That's weird. That doesn't happen all the time. He says, now pick it up. And he picks it up, and it becomes his staff again. He says, now put your hand inside your coat. So he does, and he takes it out, and it's diseased. And he says, now put it back, and he does, and he takes it out, and it's healed. God's like, get it? I will go with you. I can do stuff. I am God. I will go with you. And Moses says, okay. No, he doesn't. He says, I'm not very good at public speaking. And God says, please, Moses, shut up and go. That's not exactly what he says. It says the anger of God burned against Moses. So I'm thinking it's something like, shut up and do what I said. I'm God, and I just demonstrated my power for you. What more do you want from me? Well, we see this always in Scripture, this tension between faith and doubt. And so Jesus does the same thing here. He's like, I'm going to demonstrate my power to you, and then I'm going to tell you I'm going to go with you so that you can go with some confidence. And I know you're going to be squeamish about it anyway, but I'm going to ask you to do it. So what are we to do? What does the Great Commission tell us to do? It says to go and make disciples. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 4, at the very beginning of his ministry, what does he say to the disciples? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Do you hear what he's saying? Be my disciple and I will make you disciple makers. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians. He says, follow me as I follow Jesus. Be my disciple as I am his disciple. Do you see how it's all about following and leading? We need to somehow as believers, we need to follow and lead at the same time. It sounds counterintuitive, but we follow Jesus and then we just bring others along to do the same thing. That's the mission of God for the church. There should be a sense of urgency about what we're doing. There should be a sense of urgency that surrounds God's mission. Because as a follower of Jesus, I stand blameless before a holy God because of Christ's work on the cross, and that's the only reason. And for so many that don't know that or do not trust in that, that is not true for them. Jesus is the only answer. It's the only thing that works. You need park place and boardwalk to get a million bucks. Everything else is hash browns. There's one thing that works. It's Jesus. That's the one solution. Nothing else works. And we live in a community and in neighborhoods and around people and members of our own family who don't know the truth of the gospel and they need to know it. And how can there be anyone in our circle or anyone that we know who doesn't know this story? 
So go and find people who don't know Jesus and introduce them to Jesus and baptize them into God's family and teach them to follow him and obey him and then teach them to do the same thing, follow and lead. Some of you have been believers for a long time. Some of you have been following Jesus your whole life. Some of you have been following Jesus for a couple of years. Some of you for a couple of months. Some of you for a couple of weeks. And you're thinking, who am I going to lead? I'm just looking for someone to follow. Well, first, we need, to, we need to follow Jesus, and we need to help each other do that. But I don't care where you are in your relationship with God. There's somebody behind you. There's somebody that you can lead toward Jesus. It doesn't mean you have to know all the answers. You just need to know where to point. As we said that first week, I, I know a guy. L- let me just point you to him, because he won't disappoint you, and I will. So if a disciple is someone who follows Jesus, someone who's being changed by Jesus, someone who obeys Jesus and then teaches others to do the same, here's the question that I would ask for us this morning. First, I would just ask, are you a disciple? Are you a follower of Jesus? Have you trusted in him to save you? Have you trusted in his work on the cross to justify you before God? If that's true, are you being changed by your relationship with him? Are you really following? And are you looking for him to change you? Are you aware of what God is doing in your own life? And are you aware of the areas that he desires to change to be more like him? Are you actively looking to submit every area of your life to the lordship of Christ? That's what a disciple does. You may be like, I don't even know what that means. What does it mean to actively submit every area of my life to the Lordship of Christ? It means that the truth of the gospel informs everything that I do. It means that Jesus governs my heart and my heart attitudes and that the gospel informs everything that I do. That means that when I really struggle and I start to walk away from Him and I turn toward false gods and I start believing in or trusting in something other than Him, that the truth of the gospel overwhelms that and drives me back to him. Some of you are thinking, I don't worship any false gods. That's kind of an Old Testament reference. But what we would say is anything that we turn to or trust in that is not God is a false God. Anytime I believe things that aren't true about God, anytime I turn away from God to trust in something else, I'm believing in a false God. And so when I doubt him, What we tend to say in the church is just stop doubting. Just stop and turn to God. Well, it's hard for us to do that because in the flesh, we're not always capable of that. Do you know that that's what repentance is? Repentance is turning from my false God and turning toward the true God. Repentance means that when I doubt and I have something I'm trusting in instead of him, I repent of that and I run to the truth about who God really is. That's the tension between doubt and faith that we try to overcome. That means when I'm overwhelmed with anxiety and I realize it's because I don't trust God in the situation that I'm in, that I don't just tell myself, stop being anxious and have joy and peace, because who can do that? It means what am I not believing about God? What is it in this situation that I don't believe about God and then I need to repeat to myself the gospel? Is it that I don't believe I can trust God? Certainly I can trust God, I know that. And so what do I repent of? Well, I'm not ignorant of that, I just don't believe it. 
I just don't believe it right now. And so I need to tell myself and declare the gospel to myself and say, God has proven to me that he is trustworthy and so I will trust him. And I repent of my unbelief and I run to faith in God and I say, God, I trust you in this situation. I repent and I turn to him. That's why it's important for us as members of the family of God to keep the gospel in front of each other all the time. That's why it's important for us to be together and to declare this to each other all the time. It's important for us to continually tell each other the truth about who God is and what he's like because we have to constantly be reminded because it influences every area of my life. Because those areas of my life that aren't submitted to God need to be and I need help. Jesus says, I'll go with you and I'll give you a family to do it with. If we want to be on mission with God, we have to help each other. We need to be there for each other. And we talked about this before, but here's the second question. So the first is, are you a disciple? Are you really looking to submit every area of your life to the Lordship of Christ? And do you really know the truth of the gospel? The second question is, how are we going to do this? How are we possibly going to do this? Because this sounds really hard. And this has been, probably last week and this week, two of the hardest sermons because I feel like... um, I feel like I'm talking more to myself than to you. Being a part of the family of God, applying the gospel in every aspect of your life, and then being on mission with God, it all sounds really good in a sermon. But if we want to be people who live like Jesus and love like Jesus, the truth is that's really hard. (laughs) That's just really hard to do. It's going to take work. We're going to have to change things. We're going to have to do things differently than we've done them before, and it probably won't be super comfortable. And it's really hard to ask us to do that when it's hard to ask myself to do it. But here's what I would say. Here's how I think we can do this as a church. In life groups, I think we can do all the things that we're talking about being as a church from Sunday to Sunday. I think we can see this realized in that application because we can come up with a lot of programs to do a lot of these things. But you don't need a lot of programs and you don't need a lot of other stuff to do. Here's how we see this working. We've said that as a body of Christ, as the family of Christ, we want to be a family, we want to disciple each other, and we want to be on mission. Here's how I think life groups help us do that. First, every life group spends time together. Life groups are meant to be a family. Life groups are meant to work like family, and it's meant to be a family of missionaries. You're meant to be in a group of people that are like family and live on mission together. That's what we want a life group to be, a family that works together, a family that eats together, a family that lives together. It doesn't mean we're going to move into your house. Let me give you an example of what it might look like. So maybe one week of your life group meeting is not a Bible study. What? One week of your life group meeting is meeting at Cold Stone and having ice cream together like you would with a family. What if you just spent time together? What if you just had people over to your house for a barbecue and nobody got out a book and started teaching and nobody had a list of discussion questions? You just got together and you hung out and you talked about life and you just hung out with each other. We say we want to be about discipleship. We want to teach each other to be like Jesus. We want to shape each other to be like Jesus. How does that work in a life group? 
Every life group spends time together, family. Every life group spends time learning together. So let's get together and just talk and learn together. What is God like? Tell me the gospel again because I forgot it this week. I don't know how it applies in this area of life. What am I supposed to do? Pray with each other, teach each other, teach our kids together. Let our kids watch us live life together. Let, us watch, let our kids watch us live like Jesus together and let them watch the hard part and the good part. Kind of like doing church, but in your house or in someone else's house. So maybe you have dinner together, you have dessert together, and you just have some teaching time and you discuss together what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus in that application. That's what your life group looks like another week. And we want life groups to be about the mission of God, making disciples. What if at the beginning of the year, every life group chose a mission, a people and a place that they want to be the love of God there? I want to be the love of God in that place. Let's do that together. So one of the weeks we get together as a life group, maybe we talk about how are we going to do that? There's a senior living center on the corner of Harbor and Whittier Boulevard. What would it look like for your life group to just get together and say, what do they need and what do we have? What can we do? So that one time when your life group gets together, it's not at your house, it's not at Cold Stone, it's not teaching the Bible, it's showing up somewhere and loving on people like Jesus. What if that's what a life group looked like? A family of missionaries, family of people making disciples, sharpening each other to be like Jesus. Let me share one story before we end here. Um, some of you have heard this story because I've, I've shared this story with a, a lot of people, but there's a, a church that has been doing this, and um, this is really hard, by the way, but he shared this story about their small group that adopted a block in their city, um, an underserved city, and when they realized through conversation with their neighbors that none of the, almost none of the kids on their block had ever had a birthday party. And so their small group decided that this year our mission is this block and on this block every kid gets a birthday party this year. That's our mission. That's how we're going to love people like Jesus, just show extravagant love. And they did. And he said, you would not believe the questions that you get when you show up at someone's house and you say, we'd love to know when your kids' birthdays are because we'd like to show up and throw them a party and we'd like to bring them presents and bake them a cake and this pastor said he's sitting in the room and he's watching this small group come together and throw a birthday party for a kid who's never had one. He's like a nine-year-old boy and he's like, what are all these presents? And he said, they're for you. They're your presents. He said, all of these are for me? Yeah, they're for you. Happy birthday. He's like, what is this? It's your cake. It's your birthday cake. That's for me? Yeah, that's for you. I mean, usually, traditionally you share it with others. But yeah, it's for you. And he said he looks in the corner and there's his mom weeping, just weeping. No one had ever showed them love like that. You don't have to come in with a Bible or a tract for people to say, why are you doing this? You say, we're loving like Jesus. This is how Jesus loves people. It's extravagant. It's nonsensical. He just loves because he loves and he gives a lot of love. And that's how we want to be identified. We want to go introduce people to Jesus. And the way to do that is by loving them. It sounds like a lot. It sounds really hard, I know. We have a sign-up. You could sign up for life groups this morning. 
You can write it on your connection card. In fact, if you could take your connection card out, we'd love to know that you're here. We'd love for you to write your information on there for us so that we can contact you. If you're visiting, we'd really like that. We know that's a big ask. We'd love to know that you were here and have a chance to talk with you. And you can put that on there. I want to be in a life group. Some of you, you don't even know how you would schedule that, and I understand that. I would just say, as a church, I really think this is one of the most significant things that we could do. I really think if we want to be the church from Sunday to Sunday, then we've got to get together, and we've got to love people like Jesus, and we've got to be on mission with him. Jesus says, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. He says, you be disciples, and I'll show you how to make disciples. You follow, and you lead, and I'll go with you.